Peter is a philosopher by training, studied philosophy, and he's right in the area of philosophy and Christian apologetics. He's been part of, uh, of the apologetics work for, for decades. He, he's been part of the tour of William Lake Craig to the UK um, maybe 10 years ago. He was debating atheist along with William Lake Craig, which is the top name in the world today for Christian apologists. Um, he has been especially uh, focusing on the new atheists, looking at their arguments, analyzing them, responding to them. And, and he's written quite a few books now. Pete, uh, is it 10 or 15 or? 10 solo works at least, anyway. 10 solo works and uh, several, several more. And we've, we've announced uh, the, the Outgrowing God question mark book. Hey. And uh, um, we've made the students buy Richard Dawkins' book. <laughs> mm. And we hope it will make them feel they need to buy your book. <laughs> when is the book out? Uh, I don't have a date yet, but this uh, week uh, the manuscript has gone back uh, after the copy editing process. So we've just got the typesetting today now. Okay. So will it be available for Veritas in October, you think? Uh, I couldn't possibly commit. <laughs> no, no, okay. I hope we so. Look, yeah, we look forward to it. And after reading Dottie's book, we, we will feel the need to, to have someone help us think this through in a good way. You can, now, already, you can already find quite a lot of resources linked to it on my um, website. I've got a page for the book with videos and resources and podcasts and things relating to it. So. And the website is? Uh, PeterSWilliams.com Okay, excellent. Okay, uh, for, for this short session, we will meet you later, Pete, uh, uh, during the digital sessions. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually working quite, quite well. Um, so we're looking forward to that. This is just our first uh, meeting with you. And we've, we've, we've asked you now to present an argument for God. And you put this also in in the context, uh, and, and um, you cannot give us all the arguments, but focusing on uh, one or a few of them. Yes, we'll, we'll so see we, how far we get. Yeah, we'll see how far we get. Uh, we need to finish before two o'clock. We have a handout, and his PowerPoint will be in, uh, in, um, in Canvas as well, uh, but this, that's his material. Okay, Pete, you're okay. very welcome. We're happy to have you with us. Thank you. And uh, I will now re push the record button so we actually record it. Okay. Let's just say we recorded it like we step up. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Pete. Thank you. Uh, so I'll take it away. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's get this working. Uh, so I want to put a little bit of context about arguing for God before we look at, at one or a couple, perhaps, of arguments, and we'll just see how far we get through the material, because it's it's more important to make sure we're understanding what we're doing as we go along than, than cover all of it. You've got plenty of uh, the PowerPoints and notes and so on along with it that you can explore further uh, if you want to. Uh, so I think that most arguments for God, most theistic arguments, are trying to kind of formulize, formulate and rationally motivate uh, the recognition of the existence of various relationships that exist between God and creation. 
where each of those relationships that you can uncover uh, each of those relationships adds to our overall picture or understanding of of God uh, and I think that many of these relationships are actually intuitively perceived uh, as being just obvious or at least plausible uh, by most people um, and that would seem to chime with the fact that in terms of the statistics of belief the majority of people in the world uh, believe in a god uh, or even though a majority of people in the world probably have not uh, studied philosophical arguments for god's existence and that even if you dig down into those statistics i've got some here uh, from the Pew Research Centre showing that when you actually are more careful in say asking questions of atheists and agnostics people who who self-identify as atheists and agnostics actually quite a large percent of those people uh, believe in some kind of God or higher spiritual power uh, or even believe in God as described in the Bible so um, people out in the real world don't necessarily use these terms and these labels uh, in the uh, kind of precise way that philosophers wish they would, as it were, which is interesting to note. Talking about intuition, uh, here's a quote from uh, J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig, uh, talking about the fact that in philosophy, intuitions play a very important role. Uh, intuitions aren't infallible, we can be wrong, um, but intuitions are uh, prima facie justified, a bit of Latin thrown in there means just on the face of it, at first, at first look, as it were, justified. Um, that is, they explain, if one carefully reflects on something and a certain viewpoint just intuitively seems to be true, then one is justified, rational, in believing that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments uh, and of course as they point out any overriding counter-arguments would themselves have to ultimately rely upon intuitions uh, because our reasoning always has to start ultimately from some basic intuitions because you can't argue for everything because of the fact that you have to have you have to start arguing from somewhere in order to argue to any conclusion. Uh, so we have some, some ultimate kind of intuitional uh, starting points for any argumentation in any case. Uh, to put it in more simple terms, uh, think of this as the principle uh, that if it looks like a duck, reckon it's a duck. Until and unless someone gives you a really con a sufficiently convincing reason uh, to think that you were mistaken. Uh, so this looks like a duck, it's probably a duck, but you can imagine things that people could do to convince you that you were wrong about that. Um, maybe it's a really complicated uh, robot duck, uh, and it's not a, a real duck, for example. So extending this principle of intuition uh, and when it's kind of rational to believe things on this kind of prima facie basis into this area of belief in God here's a quote from uh, the Roman writer Cicero uh, who uh, 
in one work of his said what could be more clear or obvious when we look up at the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence. I think such intuitive perceptions of divinity are just sort of basic beliefs. They're not based on other things we believe. We just find ourselves in certain circumstances forming this belief, like Cicero here. Uh, basic beliefs grounded in our experience, uh, which means that they're reasonable to accept in the absence of sufficient counter evidence. So could I, could yeah, I, I think that's a good good place to pause. Okay, let's have a small break here. Uh, you remember we just mentioned humanist skepticism. He said we can only trust our senses, mm. right? And then this skepticism is actually to if, if you follow it, it, it breaks down, right? Uh, what atheists very often say that uh, you should start from a neutral place. We start as if there is no God. But you are saying, Pete, mm. that belief in a, a divine being, a God, is an intuition which is sufficient to start from. Is, is that right? Right. And, and you don't have to start from the position of atheism, of naturalism. Right. You don't, you don't have to, and I, I think I would put it this way, that belief in God is intuitive for many people. It, I don't think it's necessarily intuitive for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm saying it's intuitive and therefore rational for those people who have that intuition if they lack what seems to them to be sufficient counter-evidence. Um, so if you follow that, that track down the line, you can see how things get a little bit more complicated if, say, someone um, began with an intuition of God and then came across an argument that seemed to them to be sufficient counter-evidence. You know, maybe they'd need you to show that that counter-argument didn't work in order to shift them back to their original intuition. But on this basis, it's kind of saying it's not necessarily the case that in order to be rational to believe in God, you must have some kind of positive argument for God. Uh, maybe for people with the right experiences, it can be rational to believe in God just because that's their experience of, of life, the universe and everything. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting to hear from a philosopher which says you don't really need a philosophical argument to be justified to start from God. Right? So the that says something about where philosophy has moved from yeah. skepticism. Of course, there are still skeptics, but you argue from a position that belief in the divine being is rationally justified, uh, although, it, although it's not kind of a compulsory belief for everyone. It's justified mm. for those with the right Experiences. Right? Basic belief, basic intuitions, they are a good place, it's rational to, be, to, to believe in them, if you don't have good arguments against it, right? So, like Santa Claus, you have good arguments not to believe in Santa Claus. You know, Daddy was away, you grow up, you, you know the game, right? You have counter arguments. 
for the existence of Santa Claus. Yeah. Um, I kind of like that the assumption that rationalization is objective in a sense. Rationalization is objective, you say? Yeah, well, I've, I've kind of had that assumption, but mm -hmm. is it really not? Is rationalization a subjective thing? Mm -hmm. yeah. Is rationalization, he has kind of had the impression that rationalization is objective. I'm I'd have to ask a little bit more what you, what you mean by that. Could you unpack that? Is, is, is your point that that it's not just the philosophical working of it, that he is actually bringing experience and intuition as legitimate philosophical right. is, yeah. is that your point? Well, yeah. Rationalization is like it's um, it's kind of, I guess, coupled with like. Like a, an atheist would come to me and say, "What well, you're believing is not rational," mm -hmm. um, and kind of point to like the, that the rationalization that they have is objective in a sense because they believe in science. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just that's kind of like the, I, I mean I feel like I'm a rational person before believing in God. But, mm -hmm. So then I guess that it's not objective. Uh, so so yeah. he's atheists. Did you, did you hear what he was saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, this goes back again to, to, to Hume and his influence on sort of early 20th century philosophy in the, the so-called verificationist movement. Um, and those like Dawkins who, who will say, you know, the only rational reason to believe something is if you have sort of scientific empirical evidence for it. Um, but philosophers in the mid 20th century pointed out that you know even to do science you have to make uh, you have to trust certain intuitions that you have in things that you can't prove using science uh, so the the existence of a mind independent world an objective world out there um, a generally reliable uh, access to uh, that world through our senses a generally reliable uh, memory of what the result of your experiment was uh, and so on um, the fact that you know logic is logical and you should structure arguments according to the laws of logic and so on those are not things that you can empirically or scientifically prove they are um, uh, presuppositions or assumptions of doing science uh, so we have to allow the the kind of the class of rational beliefs to be broader than things that we can argue to we have to include at least the things that we argue from um, and indeed many philosophers would, would say that this general principle of you you start with trust in the way that things seem until you have reason not to believe um, Richard Swinburne, British philosopher, says, for example, if you did the opposite and you said, I, I'm never going to trust something until someone gives me enough evidence to believe, well then, of course, why would you ever believe the evidence that they gave you? Or that the evidence they were giving you really did support the conclusion it was meant to? Because you'd have to, uh, you'd have to say, well, I'm not going to trust that that is the case until you give me evidence. And you'd always say that, and then you'd end up basically never believing anything. Okay, thank you. Okay, can we move on? Yeah.
he's saying belief in a God is a rational kind of basic thing that is justified even before you argue. Right? Okay. Okay. Good. But moving on to actually trying to make formal theistic arguments, when we do this, we're generally facing a, a, a kind of trade-off, a balance between um, accessibility on the one hand, um, being intuitively convincing to people when you show them the argument and explain it to them, um, having a lack of dependence upon, say, specialised knowledge that you have to spend a lot of time explaining to people about the physics of the fine-tuning of the universe or something that they may not have heard, heard of before, before they can understand the argument and so on. So we have accessibility on the one hand and kind of what we might call robustness on the other hand, um, being logically valid as an argument um, and often involved involving dependence upon specialised knowledge. A lot of arguments for God do rely on on specialised knowledge that comes from other academic fields such as um, science, physics, biology, um, etc. So to illustrate this you can see on the one hand I've got a picture of a peacock and on the other hand I've got the uh, the formal uh, modal logic uh, statement of an ontological argument. Uh, now that, that ontological argument is very logically rigorous uh, uh, set out in, in formal logic terms there. Um, so it's in that sense you might say it's robust um, but it's not very accessible to people, right? Unless they've studied uh, philosophy at a high level. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, it might sway some people to point at a peacock and say look at that peacock and how beautiful it is and how just designed it seems intuitively to be isn't that evidence for the existence of a designer? And that points in the direction of God. Uh, well, that's very accessible. Just show them a peacock. Um, but some people might think that's not a particularly robust argument because, well, actually, you haven't been even given an argument. You've just said, look at that peacock. Doesn't it look? And I'm, I'm appealing to intuition. Uh, and so formal theistic arguments, uh, you're generally faced with this kind of trade-off uh, and ideally, of course, you, you want uh, uh, accessible and robust uh, arguments, um, but particularly when you're speaking with people who don't know, haven't studied formal logic or haven't studied particular subjects that the argument draws upon, you're going to need to kind of try and communicate to people some, some of the background that's needed to, to grasp uh, the, the argument. And there's actually a far broader range of theistic arguments than most people realise as well. Um, Alvin Plantinga once famously presented a paper in which he outlined a couple of dozen or so theistic arguments, for example. Um, in Richard Dawkins' best-selling book, The God Delusion, he spends uh, 37 pages of that book considering arguments for God and he rejects it, 10 theistic arguments in those pages. Um, so he hasn't even addressed uh, all of the arguments uh, that one might put for the existence of God, say. But people might think that he has uh, because, gosh, you know, he's gone through these 10 arguments and rejected them all. And he hasn't said, you know, 
here's the whole list or, or whatever. Uh, another example of this is the, uh, the the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, a big thick book of uh, arguments for God. Uh, there are nine arguments looked at uh, in that book, uh, only five of which appear in the pages of the God Delusion. Um, so even for people who are reading sort of popular books on this subject, sometimes they won't have a have an idea um, of the range and breadth of the theistic arguments that are available. Uh, for Just to pick one example, I, I would guess that very few people have heard of the so-called argument from desire, uh, which is a family of arguments that seek to move from an analysis of natural or innate human desires uh, to conclusions that support theism. Um, it's an argument made particularly famous uh, in the 20th century by C.S. Lewis who wrote about it in a number of different contexts, for example, um, and that I've written a few things uh, uh, about in, in recent years as well. Um, but it's not an argument that you standardly find in introductory philosophy textbooks, for example. Um, here's just a, a few of the books that Lewis uh, wrote about this in, in different contexts, uh, and a book that I contributed some chapters to called C.S. Lewis's Christian Apologetics, where I took part in a, in a debate. It's a book of debates about arguments that Lewis made, and I defended the uh, argument from design in debate with uh, the editor Gregory Basham. Uh, so it's it's good to sort of um, broaden our horizons when it comes to uh, these arguments uh, for God uh, as well. There's uh, another good pausing point. Okay. Any comments, questions to where we are? So there is a wide range of arguments for the existence of God. And Adam Plantinga, who is one of the um, uh, most prominent philosophers today, is a Christian. He has a dozen or so theistic arguments that are valid, are compelling but valid, which means more than 20. Right? So there's a lot of things to, to explore. Uh, uh, he's, the argument from desire, argumentum from nature. Uh, is, is that what you will be looking at now? I can give you a couple of quick examples. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so as yeah. I, I say, I, 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 I just, just a moment. So, so, do you have any questions at this point? So he, he's going to focus on. on some examples of the uh, argument from desire, mm -hmm. right? And you will move, move on to another argument afterwards, is I, that so? Uh, we should probably fit in a cosmological argument or two, yeah. But, okay, which I think would be probably more familiar, the mm. cosmological argument, argument from the cosmos. Uh, argument from longing or from from um, uh, the, the desire is it's very interesting. And, and from Kier Boots, yeah? Then my... Yeah. Okay. Okay. We we with you. Move on. So here's just a couple of examples of ways of expressing uh, this kind of argument. Um, here's an, an, a sort of inductive kind of argument where you might say something like, "Humans seem to have an innate sort of built-in desire for God, or for one or more states of being for which God." might be thought to be a necessary precondition. 
Uh, so maybe you might talk about uh, humans having a desire for uh, um, a heavenly eternal existence or a desire for um, forgiveness uh, for the things that we uh, do wrong. Um, but if you say also that most innate human desires are such that there exists some object that's able to satisfy them and you can sort of enumerate lists of apparently inbuilt desires that, that have states of affairs that satisfy them, uh, you could then infer that therefore God uh, probably, uh, inferential argument, God probably uh, exists. Or my, I think, my favourite way of, of putting this argument, a kind of existential way of arguing this, um, would be to say something like this, that, that given that humans possess these, these inbuilt uh, sort of existential desires, desires that deal with the kind of things that the existentialist philosophers uh, talk about when they when they kind of say because th there's no God life is meaningless and there are no values and uh, and and so on. If we possess these innate existential desires, our existence would be to agree with the existentialists absurd to the extent that it's, that it's impossible for any human to have those kind of desires for meaning and purpose and so on satisfied. Um, and that humans do possess uh, these desires that are probably impossible to satisfy unless God exists. So we're kind of agreeing with the existentialists like Sartre and Camus or nihilists uh, like Nietzsche thus far. Uh, and then we draw the conclusion that therefore unless God exists, uh, our existence is probably absurd at least to a su substantial extent. However, premise number four, however, our existence is probably not absurd, at least not to a, a really substantial extent. Uh, now, if you think that's also true, then you can draw the conclusion that therefore God probably exists. Uh, and I think uh, what I would say about this crucial premise number four is I would just defend that again as a, as a, uh, a rational, basic belief that actually when I think about life, the universe and everything, when people in general do, um, it seems to us that life is meaningful and worthwhile and, and we ask the question, you know, what is the purpose of life? We, we have this sort of inbuilt tendency to try and seek out the meaning and purpose of our lives. Um, we don't actually start with the inbuilt assumption that life is meaningless. We have to kind of be argued into that uh, on the basis that there's no God. Um, so you can kind of turn that around and say, actually, it, it's, it seems to me that life is meaningful and purposeful and so on, that, that nihilism is not just obviously true. Um, and actually that points towards belief in the existence of God who is a, a prerequisite for satisfying our ultimate desire for meaning and purpose, um, moral value, aesthetic value, and so on. Okay. Are you with us? So argument with desire, you, we have thirst, we have hunger, we have hunger for relationship, for love, for purpose. 
at least these physical things seem to correspond to something. I feel hungry, there is food. I feel thirsty, there is water. Now, if we have thirst for meaning, for purpose, for eternal life, for knowing God, well, it makes sense to be rational to say that there's probably something corresponding to that desire, right? It makes sense. And we can push back at those who say it's absurd to, well, you don't really, really live as it's absurd, do you, right? Okay? Re reducing their own absurdity. Okay? Any questions? Arguments from desire, which is existentially very relevant to, to modern people who desire things for their lives. And this points out some, some of the bigger questions in life. Is actually an argument for existence of, of a God. That, that's the only thing that can fulfill the bigger things. Okay? Hmm. Okay, we're with you. Okay, good, good. Shall I uh, move on to uh, introducing a, a very basic cosmological argument? Good. Okay. Uh, so just to say that that discussion very briefly of a couple of arguments from desire does point out the fact that, that theistic arguments tend to come in families that deal with the same general theme. For example, cosmological arguments deal with causality. Um, but they deal with that theme in different ways, uh, for example, by using different argumentative forms. So, um, deductive or inductive arguments, and we gave an inductive version of the argument from desire there, uh, and then a reductio ad absurdum version in that existential version. Uh, so again, the, the cosmological argument is, there's no such thing as, you know, the cosmological argument, there's a whole family of arguments that deal with causality uh, that point to God uh, and they uh, look at these causal relationships between non-divine realities and, and God. Uh, so here's a, a very basic way of expressing a cosmological argument. Uh, Say so one, uh, since it is impossible for everything to be caused, if anything exists, then there must exist an uncaused thing. But two, something exists, from which it follows deductively that three, therefore, there must exist an uncaused thing. And then, of course, one might want to unpack and defend the premises of that, that argument. So why believe um, that it's impossible for everything to be caused, for example? Uh, well, you can argue that there can't be an infinite, an actually infinite regress of causes. Um, or you might express it this way. You can say, well, look, there's nothing outside of everything to cause anything. N nothing, non-existence can't do anything because it isn't anything. Um, so uh, to do anything, you have to, to be a thing. You have to exist. And there's nothing outside of everything. So if you say uh, everything can't be caused, it's impossible for everything to be caused because what would do the causing? So if it's impossible for everything to be caused, and but there does exist something at least, then there must exist something that is an uncaused thing. Um, but something does exist. I mean, it's self-contradictory to deny this. Uh, I do not exist. That's a self-contradictory 
statement. So something exists from which it follows deductively that there must exist an uncaused thing. Now, what's what's you know the big brouhaha about there being an uncaused thing? Well, this is where you extend the argument a little bit and you, you think about well, what do, what would that mean? You think well, physical things are contingent things that seem to require a cause and that would mean that an uncaused thing couldn't be a physical thing because then it would require a cause uh, so if something exists but it isn't physical then of course by just by definition it must be a non-physical thing so this argument seems to point to the existence of a, of a non-physical thing which contradicts a naturalistic worldview and the existence of a, a non-physical thing contradicts naturalism or, or materialism, but it is, of course, to be expected on a theistic worldview that there's a, a, a non-physical thing that's uncaused. Um, that's part of what theists mean by God. So theism would predict the existence of such a thing, and, and naturalism is contradicted by the existence of such a thing. So this argument certainly is some evidence for theism over against naturalism. Any questions now? <laughs> this is one form of a cosmological, cosmological argument. It just argues for that there needs to be a cause for something. And everything can't cause itself. Right? Because there must be a cause outside the universe. Everything needs because that's not inside it. So you, he, he's he, he has been using some logical terms now that you could be struggling with. It's part of philosophy and logic, inductive and infinite regress. Infinite regress means going back infinitely, loud end. You cannot have something that goes on back in time forever because then now would not exist. That's a philosophical argument that says you, you can't have things causing each other for, forever back in time. If if infinitely back in time, now would never be, right? So there needs to be some point of starting causes. That's kind of another part of this is, uh, argument as well. Okay, any questions? This is a one simple version, yeah? So what is the starting point for an atheist? Like where do they start? Yeah, yeah, where's the starting point for an atheist? That's what you're asking? Yeah? So, yeah. yeah. Well, a atheists traditionally, as you, you were talking about, uh, another sort of version of the argument which talks about temp time, causation back in time, and atheists yeah. traditionally, of course, believed that there was a, an infinite amount of time backwards, um, which has become quite difficult in, in light of both philosophical arguments against that and of course contemporary Big Bang cosmology which again points to uh, a beginning of time, a, a finite past. Um, but uh, of course you know some have, have thought about this and would just sort of say stuff just exists. What's you know, uh, Bertrand Russell said the universe is just there and that's all. Um, yeah. <laughs> So you ask what, what's the starting point of atheists? Uh, yeah. What, yeah what where, where, do, where do modern atheists start? 
Aber I think he answered it. Hmm? He answered it now, yeah? He answered it. Yeah. Good. Any other questions? So this is arguing for the need for a cause, right? So the um, another version of it is looking at the time. Uh, you can go back in time, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think skip a couple of slides briefly. Um, if if you have a in, in terms of looking back in time, if you have a finite past, and you can argue that on scientific and philosophical bases, you, you, you can you can support the premise that there was a, f a first physical event um, and if you combine that with the idea that every physical event because they're contingent things has to have a cause outside of itself of, of some kind uh, you, you can take this through uh, draw the conclusion that every physical event must have a cause outside of itself um, because physical events are contingent and contingent things must have causes outside of themselves so um, you can go like this there was a first physical event every physical event has a cause outside of itself so the first physical event had a cause outside of itself but of course uh, add also the information that the cause of the first physical event by its very nature can't have been a physical cause you can't say what caused the first physical event answer oh the previous physical event that, that doesn't make any sense does it because you're you're asking what caused the first physical event um, so if the first physical event did need a cause then that cause must be non-physical again the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause outside of it itself uh, and similarly to the, the first argument that again points in the in the theistic uh, direction um, I think it's very very close to this sort of contingency cosmological argument this this idea of things are if they're contingent they can exist but they don't have to and they need an explanation for why they do exist um, that's the the idea of contingent uh, and it would seem to point ultimately to the existence of of something that's as philosophers say necessary that not only can exist but can't not exist that that must exist um, because uh, again it would be impossible for all the existing things to be contingent things you know, one contingent thing relying upon another um, especially if if you've got a a finite series of them and there's a first one and you just you can't answer the question what caused that first contingent physical event or thing by saying or oh, the previous one because <laughs> there isn't a previous physical event to the first one right so you you either have to sort of make a, an exception for the first physical event and somehow trying to say I know physical events always need causes except for the first one which, which seems ad hoc or um, just sort of why say that um, or admit that there was a non-physical uh, non-contingent uh, cause of the physical universe 
All right, we we uh, we're close. We're over towards closing now. Uh, you've given us example of some some theistic uh, arguments. You show this. This is the big universe of arguments. You open the door. Let us smell a little bit the argument from desire, and then the argument from the cosmos. And you see that the way he's arguing is putting them in a syllogism, which is the simplest logical form, to make it clear how we argue. Uh, just, just one question, Pete. Mm. Uh, are, uh, are atheists convinced of these arguments? Um, and and, and why, why not if they are not? If they are there, why, why don't the philosophers come to us? <laughs> right. Well, very, very few philosophical arguments convince everyone who looks at them um, to set a standard for an argument that it's only a good argument if it convinces everyone who, who considers it. That's a very unrealistic standard to put on arguments for anything, uh, kind of in any realm of academic discourse, really. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, um, no atheist who remains... Um, an atheist has been convinced by all the arguments but there are certainly examples plenty of examples of people who are moved uh, to become theists by their examination of arguments such as these um, and of course you could point out that there are there are people who are Christians who having read arguments from atheists are moved to become atheists all right Pe people move worldviews in different directions, uh, having done their best to make sense of uh, the the arguments and the data as they understand it, um, all you know, as an individual can do is say, I, "I find these arguments persuasive," and give you my reasons and see whether you agree or not. Um, <laughs> and that's all one all one can do. It's it's. Um, our job to um, try and clearly explain the arguments, explain how arguments in general work. That's a good background to have and to, to, to help people to be able to assess arguments from all sides of the debate by, by teaching people about basic logic and logical fallacies and so on. Um, not everybody has that, that background, of course. Um, and I was saying also you need sometimes to explain the particular data to people not everybody uh, understands uh, the data um, but you're absolutely right to say you know, there are people who are well trained in philosophy who know the know the relevant data and so on who aren't convinced and asking well why not um, really perhaps gets more into sociology or psychology um, than it does necessarily to philosophy um, yeah, yeah. Good, that's helpful, and and, um, and in terms of the existence of God, I think it's it, we have a we need to see that if, if God exists, He is the explanation of the wide variety of phenomena, mm. like morality, yeah. like our longing, like the value of relationships, yeah. like this, the beginning of the cosmos, the design, right? Yeah. So, so you can, if you learn some of them, you can pick those who those arguments that fit very well with this, the place the person is, right? Mm. So, so um, uh, we will get back to some logics teaching with you later, uh, which which will help you be be more careful with the way you argue and understanding argument and be able to critique it as well mm. better. So, 
Uh, right now, Pete, uh, we we have to thank you, uh, and we're going to our break, and we'll we'll see you again um, later for digital sessions. Um, and, and thank you very much for for being with us. Thank you, and God bless, and and also the process with with your latest book. Thank you very much. See you later, okay. everyone. See you around. Good.